Church, Andover Campus, in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Loving God, for any ways in which we are walking in the darkness, shine your light so bright that we can't help but notice. Uh, Open our hearts and minds to understand that which you might reveal to us, that we might be sent forth in your spirit to bring your light to others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you were going to turn to your neighbor and tell them what the Bible is, do you have an answer uh, on the tip of your tongue? Kathy, you got one? God's Word. God's Word, okay. That's a good Jesus joke, just going straight for God's Word. How else would you describe the Bible? It, it, it's a library of books, right? That's, that's one you hear commonly. It's uh, like you've gone to the library and there's this book and this book, but they kind of fit together. Um, you, you've, uh, you hear these, but then you actually try to think about what it means and what it's like, and is there anything else like it? And you really can't come up with anything other than the Word of God, can you? Uh, a library isn't held together as closely as our Bible is, right? Like, even a theological library or a library of the classics isn't uh, one big story. Uh, you think of an anthology. Any of us who took Freshman Lit, you got some anthology that had all kinds of stuff in there. And even if it was tied together, it's a similar theme or similar whatever, it, it's not the same thing as the Bible, is it? Uh, I, I've tried to think about... Uh, you know, if we say it's the Word of God and God has inspired these authors, uh, Robert Ludlum wrote The Born Identity and The Born Supremacy and The Born Legacy, uh, and then after he died, somebody else has taken on his name and continued these books. It's different authors kind of telling the same story, but it's, it's not the same. N.T. Wright says that the Bible is the only place in the world that there's the intersection of history, literature, and theology. That you can find lots of places where two of those intersect, but you can't find a place where the three of them intersect. And I think it gets at, uh, you know, Kathy's answer, it's the Word of God. We spent a whole hour in the podcast talking about what the Bible is, and Teddy said, really, it's, it's the living Word of God. Uh, if you've been around me in the discipleship intensive, you know that I love to think about it in terms of it being God's story and our story. Right? It, it tells the story of God and his work amongst creation. It tells our story and how we fit into it. Um, and it's fascinating. It's a fascinating book, even though book doesn't begin to, to really describe what it is, does it? I, I studied inductive Bible study at the seminary, and we approached the text. Uh, if you've read Adler's How to Read a Book, we learn how to approach the text systematically and look for structures and overarching Uh, ways the book's organized. We do this at the level of, say, Matthew. We'll break Matthew down and look at how it divides into sections and uh, what relationships has. Are there cause and effects within the book of Matthew? Are there major repetitions of themes? This is common in literature, right? You, You analyze it so you can understand it. I've begun to become convinced that there's uh, a structure to the whole of the Bible that is incredible. That, uh, you know, if we look at Ephesians and look for a bookend, it's one thing, but to look at the whole of the Bible and see what it is offering us, it's offering us something incredible because it's offering us the story of our God and it's offering us our story. It starts and ends 
in these gardens, it's got major repetitions of times where we uh, um, are close to God and fall away from God. Uh, and it's got uh, a main character who shows up at just the right time. The, the story starts with creation. God uh, creates the heavens and the earth, and he fills them. He fills the heavens with lights, both a big light and a small light. He fills the skies with birds, the earth with creatures, the seas with fish, and creates humanity as the climax of creation. Humanity, male and female, created in his image, and it was very good. He invites humanity into mission with him. He says, come and be my partner, both in filling the earth, procreating, uh, creating new, and caring for the creation that was there. There is not a person who is, uh, there is not a single person not invited into God's partnership. In this moment, God says, we will work together. But pretty quickly, you get to Genesis 3, where the serpent tempts uh, humanity, and they think, Maybe if we do violate this one prohibition, maybe if we do eat from this fruit, we will be more like God. And they do it, and things begin to unravel from there. From, from that moment, the distance between humanity and God seems to grow at every turn. We, we're all familiar with the stories of Noah and the ark. We're familiar with the Tower of Babel. We're familiar with how God uh, chooses to work through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, we've heard the stories of Joseph living in Egypt and uh, kind of delivering his family for a while. Uh, the text goes to the next page where uh, they are now enslaved in Egypt. God seems to have forgotten them. They seem to be as far away from God as they can be, but yet God hears them and enters into their story once more. They uh, are delivered out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness. Before they've even crossed over the sea, they seem to be doubting God. We should have just stayed back there. This pattern continues of humanity doubting the goodness of God and running away from him and God chasing after them. They go into the wilderness and time after time after time they rebel. Ultimately, this entire generation dies off and they enter into the land that was promised to them. They go in and they rebel against God. Samuel thinks they're rebelling against him, and God says, it's me they're rejecting. They've demonstrated time and time again that they turn from God, and they trample on each other. They ask for a king so he can be like the other good nations, and God gives them a king. And things still fall apart. At every turn, we see kings pursue their own interests. We see humanity turn to false gods over and over again. We see this widening gap between God and humanity. Ultimately, God sends them into exile into Babylon. And seemingly, they're as far from God as can be, right? Seemingly, this is about as bad as it gets. But at least in exile, God has told them how long this is going to last. 72 years, and, and we'll come back together. Eventually, they come back into the land. There, there's a temple there, but it's pretty disappointing. They're not sure God is in the temple. They're still under empire. And the story stops. For 500 years, this nation sits there and seems to wonder, where is God? 
If we think exile was the worst, surely it's that page turn that is the worst. Has God abandoned us completely? What can we do to draw God back to us? The Pharisees try to convince people that if we just obey the law better, God's presence will come in our midst one more time. Surely that's the way, right? Let's be great law obeyers. The Sadducees try to tell everybody, okay, we got to strip it back to the, to the heart of being in relationship with God. Stop worrying about all these little details. The zealots say, okay, maybe we have to overthrow the empires before God will come back. Let's go and let's do battle. And seemingly, they never hear from God. This, this has got to be the literary lowest point of the story, right? A story that starts with God and humanity walking in the cool of the garden together. A story where it is just common for God to walk up and say, hey. And they have no idea where God is. You turn the page and the story changes. We hear about the uh, proclamation that God is going to do something. That God is going to respond. That God is actually coming in flesh. Jesus is going to be God's Messiah. We've heard these stories over the last few weeks of uh, the, the preparations for Jesus, the birth of Jesus, and his baptism. John the Baptist has been the uh, kind of adult on the scene. He's been the ministry leader up until this point. Uh, after the baptism, the next thing that happens is Jesus is carried out into the wilderness by the devil and tempted. If you're God, do these things and I'll give you everything. Feels familiar, doesn't it? If you want to be like God, do these things and I'll give you whatever you want. In the beginning of the story, the serpent tempts humanity and they give in. As the story takes this massive turn, Jesus is tempted by the devil and doesn't give in. Immediately we turn to the next chapter and we read that John was arrested. John now fades into the backdrop of the story and Jesus fully steps into the lead of this narrative. This is what we talk about as a pivot in literary uh, structures. Things dramatically change. There's a massive turn in the story. John is arrested and Jesus goes to Galilee. I love that this is the place he goes. Galilee is about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get. It is like uh, the, the farthest place from where God would possibly be. If God dwells in the temple, Galilee doesn't even see a glimpse of the temple. Galilee is also the first place that goes into exile, and yet it's the first place that begins to see the light of Christ. He goes to Galilee and says... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John's message at the baptism, and now it's Jesus' message. Repent, change your hearts, change your lives, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he goes, and he calls disciples. Peter, Andrew, come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. They get out of their boat and they follow him. Sons of Zebedee, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They don't only leave their nets and their boats behind, they leave their father behind. And they follow him. 
The story says that they went about proclaiming the good news and healing and announcing deliverance. At the lowest point of the story, God invites humanity once more to be his partners in what he is doing. In creation, God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it and care for it. Once more, God has settled up right beside humanity and said, be my partner in this work I'm doing. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. What does that look like? It looks like us going town to town announcing the good news that the kingdom is at hand. It looks like us going and healing folks. It looks like us going and setting people free. It looks like liberation and release. From the moment humanity was exiled from the garden, the distance between them and God seemed to grow. In the page turn between the Old and New Testament, there seemingly was a complete fracture. Where is God? And God steps right into the mess of it. Steps into it in the person of Jesus and goes and says, come and follow me. Come and follow me. And they do. The sheer incredibleness of this moment can't be understated. In terms of history, in terms of literature, in terms of theology, this moment changes everything. The king of the universe could have come in and just zapped everything bad, right? Could have come in and battled and taken over and done things, but he came in and went to humanity in a boat and said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He could have fixed everything on his own, but he invited us to be part of that. He returned to the garden. He returned to God's desire for humanity to be in partnership. And that whole rest of the story continues this. We see it through his whole ministry that Jesus doesn't go and do anything ever really again other than pray. He's in partnership with humanity for the rest of his ministry. And after he dies, he sends his spirit so that we are never wondering where God is ever again. Through the Spirit, the church is given birth, and we're sent out. We're sent out to call people to God, to expose them to the light of Christ, to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, to proclaim release. And we do this as we wait. If, if that page turn is the lowest point in the story, we know that there's more to come. We see that there's this picture of another garden, a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, heaven coming down out of, earth, out of uh, the skies to earth. We see that uh, Christ will come again and destroy sin and evil. There'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sorrow. But we live in that gap in between, that gap where it's hard both in terms of history and theology and in terms of literature, right? We, le we live in this moment where there is still pain, where there is still sorrow, where there is still captivity, where there is still bondage. And so God has called us, come and follow me. And he's taught us what that means through his entire ministry. 
He has shown us what it means to announce release to the captives, recovering of sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. It's a fascinating book that we have. And book doesn't do it justice, does it, Carrie? I saw that look. It, the living word of God is incredible. For it shows us what it means to be a people that God has called to himself. From the beginning of the story to the end, God has never stopped pursuing humanity, even when it seemed like he had. Even when we rebelled so much that it seemed like God had left us, God still had a plan. God chased us at every point. And he chases us today. We're the church, so we like to talk like everybody's got it all together, right? Uh, we don't. Uh, there are plenty of us in here today who are feeling like we're in bondage, like we're oppressed, like there's some captivity. And for that, I want to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ wants to meet you exactly where you are and pour out his spirit upon you. And friends, even if we are feeling liberated and like we have stepped into the light, our world desperately needs us to come and say, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your heart. We don't have to look far, do we? We don't have to like imagine there's somebody out there who needs to hear the good news that Christ loves us, do we? Most of us don't have to look any farther than our own family to know that there are people who need to hear that God says, come and follow me. Through his spirit, he's never left us alone to go out there and figure out what it means anymore. He's filled us with his spirit and offered us grace upon grace to go and to be fishers of men, to bear witness to the good news that the God who was present in creation is the same God who took on flesh in Christ, the same God who fills us with his spirit and the same God who calls us to new creation. He calls to each one of us, come and follow me. Would you pray with me? Loving God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your nature and character have never changed. You are loving. You're truthful. You're faithful. But yet, the way you meet us looks different at every page turn. Meet us exactly where we are today. Through your spirit, let us know that you still call to us. Show us what we're to be called out of and show us what you're calling us to. Fill us with your spirit and a boldness to announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Give us eyes to see and hearts to know where we might go and follow you announcing liberation, release, proclaiming your good news. Lord, send us out of these walls, not as people who have encountered you simply as a character in literature or have uh, examined you as part of history or even thought through you theologically, but as people who have encountered the living word of God 
Empower us to go and point others to you, the very word who took on flesh. It's the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Amen.